Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's episode, Tim Burcham tells how his early training in music theater was the perfect background for a stunning career in higher education fundraising and beyond. Handpicked by his university's president, he rose from recruitment officer to leader of a new 16-institution, $900 million fundraising effort, and then serve as chair of the International Board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. He tells us about his journey and his work today to help attract and mentor a rising new generation of fundraising leaders. Tell me about yourself. Okay. Uh, but in terms of my professional career? Yeah. However you'd like to start. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Well, I, I have kind of an interesting um, pathway to where I am today. I, I, I actually went to school for theater and music. And really? Was, yes. Whereabouts? At Marshall University, sure. Huntington, West Virginia. Uh-huh. I'm from that, that general area. Uh, and so I thought I was going to Broadway. That was my plan. Um, and when I graduated from Marshall, um, I was approached by the president of the university because I had been very involved in a lot of productions and sang at Christmas at his home, you know, all these things. Oh, wow. And so <laughs> as I'm coming up for graduation, I was approached by the president to become the first full-time on-the-road admissions recruiter uh, 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 for Marshall <laughs> University back in, this was back in the 70s. Wow. And so um, I decided to take that job because I needed a job. Sure. Till I could get to my ultimate goal, um, which was Broadway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I never got to Broadway. Um, <laughs> Is that because you just were having too much fun well, I, performing I, this I, role I, that you were in? Up, um, <laughs> staying in that job for three years oh, and wow. uh, and then the the boss that i had at the time uh said to me you know you're really good at this work and if you're going to stay in this work you really need an advanced degree and uh, he happened to know the person that was in charge of admissions and recruiting at the university of kentucky in lexington mm-hmm. so he introduced me to him and that gentleman offered me a job at UK uh, part-time while I was attending graduate school. And that's right. how I got to Lexington. And from there, I ended up graduating with my master's in higher ed administration, which was a complete departure from <laughs> my other training. And I became the director of freshman admissions at UK. Um, and I did that for eight years. Um, and, and I tell the story that my theater and music background were absolutely perfect training for that work. Uh, and it's also turned out to be perfect training for my fundraising work. Um, so in the span of those eight years that I was at UK in, in admissions, um, we went from a open admission institution to a selective admission oh. institution. Yeah. And I was approached to, to create a, scholar, a merit scholarship program to help recruit the top students. And so I interfaced with the development office to create this scholarship program and helped raise 
a million and a half dollars for the first endowed scholarship, merit scholarship. And that's how I got introduced to development. And so they offered me a position in the development office um, working for uh, the University Medical Center. And so I took that job. Sure. And, and ever since I've been in, in fundraising. Right. Way leads on to way. Yeah, it's just it was just one layer after another. But before we go any further, I, I still want to know what was your audition song when you were back in school? <laughs> because you, if you wanted to go to Broadway, you had you had a song or a piece. I don't even really remember what it would have been. Um, probably, probably something from Music Man. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, because I, I did that show multiple times. Really? Yeah. As which? Yeah. Which character? Uh, multiple, multiple characters. Really? Oh. Yeah. Over. I did Summerstock Theater and University Theater. And wow. He's all. a what? He's a what? He's a music man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. So oh, I don't even remember what what song it would have been, but yeah. So it, it's that background lended sure. itself very well to public speaking and kind of being good on your feet mm -hmm. and, and all that, which, you know, in the recruiting business was basically everything. That's, that's all I did was go and talk to people and make presentations and invite people to campus yeah. and tours and, and all that sort of thing. But being kind of handpicked by the president yeah. to do that, right. that was, um, I mean, exceptional identification on the part of the president and really remarkable that they reached out to a student like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But then also it must well, have I been- I knew him really well oh. as a student because okay. I was in his home all the time performing. <laughs> every, every major president's event, they had the right. music department come out and perform come and perform and so i was and he's home all the time yeah um and all the major university events and of course he came to all the shows and so i knew him and he knew me did and you continue that friendship that relationship yeah over yeah, time uh, yeah he he ultimately retired before i left marshall he retired oh, okay he was at the end of his career uh, at that point uh, but he was very kind to me very very gracious to me and um and so he he kind of started me on this path that I was not intending to be on. Um, and so I, you know, I, I went into the development world, uh, really in an academic medical center setting, mm. cancer center, right. uh, children's hospital, all the academic colleges, you know, medicine, dentistry, nursing, pharmacy, all that. Um, did all the annual giving programs for, for all of those entities uh, and um, small major gift um, fundraising, which was really how I cut my teeth in, in the fundraising world. And then, um, oddly enough, um, eight years into that, um, no, four, four years into that, I got approached by the university president at UK to start a development program for the two-year college system of Kentucky, which was part of the university system. Sure. Yeah. And so I took that position uh, and literally started with nothing. There was no development program. And there were 14 institutions across the state that comprised that okay. system. So how did you decide? Because that's that was a lot to bite off. It was a lot, a lot to bite off. Um, the reason they approached me was I was the only person on the central development staff 
who had been on all of those campuses okay. from my days when I was recruiting students. Oh, wow. So sure. I was really the only development team member that they felt would understand <laughs> any of that system or mm -hmm. those institutions. And so I literally just, I mean, they gave me an office and I started with nothing. Um, so that was, um, that was an, an incredible experience. Was that exciting or it terrifying or a little bit of both? <laughs> uh, I, I really didn't know what I was doing, uh, to be honest. I just knew that there was a lot of potential, um, because these were out in the communities all over the state and they had this tremendous network of, of individuals and companies that relied on these colleges locally for their workforce. But it sounds like they were also probably not being tended. No, and, and no so one, this no one the first was time. really, you know, from the main university in Lexington, no one was out helping them raise money. That's a big lift to get, I mean, to welcome people back in the fold who, who care already, right. but they've never really been right. Uh, involved in, or not um, invited to participate. Yeah. Well, what's, what I found, uh, which was very interesting, is those colleges had been receiving support all of their lives, you know, as institutions. The university had not fully recognized that support. When I got out there and started finding that support existed, then all I really had to do was figure out how to maximize all that activity and formalize it, build a program around it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I did that. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, I had been trained in the typical alumni giving model, you know, where you work with alumni and you acquire the donor and then you renew the donor and upgrade over time and, and all that sort of thing. That model does not work in the community college world. They don't have the same alumni affinity to those institutions that four-year institutions and, and have. I hear this a lot, but but one thing that'd be really helpful for me to hear and for others to hear is why they don't have the affinity. Because I think there are a lot of assumptions well, about that. So, a lot of it is uh -huh. because they're two-year institutions. Sure. And for those institutions, they were feeder schools up to the main university. Okay, so it's sort of like the high school college dynamic or yeah, uh, it's, it's their, college they're graduate not really, school? There's, there's no housing, so they're not like housed on a campus. Right. There's no, there are no fraternities and sorority, none of that stuff. All those things that are kind of identity All related. All those connection and identity yeah, uh, yeah. pieces of the university don't typically exist. They didn't in Kentucky mm -hmm. uh, at those institutions. So they were basically community-based um, off-site um, programs of the university to get transfer students to come to the main campus. So when I got them, but the other side of those institutions is there were all these other programs that were dedicated to uh, training the workforce for those local communities in nursing and allied health professions and a lot of technical programs and, you know, in, um, engineering and, and all kinds of things. Um, and so what I found is these communities loved these colleges, but the connection was not an alumni driven connection. It was an economic development, oh, community development right. role that these institutions played in those communities. And what I found is a tremendous amount of money had been given by the local community businesses and non-alumni individuals 
who were using the resources of the college to create a workforce for their businesses. So it's a really different model, and I had to kind of pivot um, uh, in terms of my understanding of what fundraising was. And I made the dramatic decision to really start the, the once I've got, I had to hire people on all 14 of those campuses and create a development office at each location. Once I got that team assembled, I decided to take us into a campaign, a major gifts campaign. Um, so I flipped the model yeah. on its head. Instead of starting with small gifts and going up, I started with big gifts and went down. Yeah. And it worked beautifully. But were those institutional big gifts or were they individual big gifts? They were both individual and corporate. So owners of companies, oh, I guess, oh, things like yeah. that, who had that. Business community. people and companies, um, okay. cor corporate philanthropy. You, you described that as love, which is interesting because I don't, you know, oftentimes when people think about companies and foundations, that love isn't the word that comes to mind necessarily. It, yeah. it, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's the benefit that they derive. It's, it's, the, it's the brand, uh, you know, affinities, things yeah. like that. But you're describing something richer. Yeah, Com companies that surrounded these colleges relied so much on those colleges right. for their workforce. Um, and the college kind of created a, uh, a culture of higher education in those communities that brought the whole community up. And so those companies were benefiting from that, that culture of education and, right. um, you know, career advancement and all that sort of thing. So they, they really did love these institutions and they were very generous to them. Um, and because they were locally based, they could turn on a dime and create a program, you know, to serve the needs of a company sure. in some specific technical workforce training uh, initiative. So, so all of that happened. You know, I was able to figure out how to build a program um, in a, with a different model than I had been trained in at, at the university. Sure. Uh, and it worked beautifully. Uh, and then in, in 1998, um, the governor of the state of Kentucky decided to separate those community colleges away from the University of Kentucky uh, and create an, them into their own system. Um, and once again, I was approached, the governor's office approached me to go to the new system with those colleges because I had done the campaign, I had built an endowment and all that money was going to the new system and they wanted me to go with it. <laughs> this, is, this is, I mean, all of this is fascinating, but I'm wondering where Tim was in this, if you know what I mean, because you, you, it sounds like people were saying, you, you know, you can do this and you said, sure. And then there's an opportunity you said, okay, which yeah. is really exciting. But then you were doing it kind of as a soloist, building great things. But right. yeah. what, how was this, how did you feel about all this? How, what was, was happening to you? You know, I really, it's a really t tough question. I, I guess I saw the opportunity right. and realized that I actually could do it. Right. I, I can do this, right. you know. Uh, and I was being invited. I've never applied for a job. I've never filled out a job application in my life. Right. Never. Um, people have invited me to, to come and do something. Uh, and I've always felt like I could do it. Mm -hmm. And obviously they felt like I could do it, right. which is why the invitation was extended. So. I actually moved out of the university setting and into the community college system setting 
to create that new system right. from, from the ground up yeah. uh, and built a whole new institution of higher education around now this new system of colleges that were independent from the university. Um, I founded a foundation, created the foundation for the new system, and led that for 18 years. Uh, and then over the course of those years, my portfolio just exploded. Um, I went in as a development professional, but as a new system, we didn't have a lot of the components of a new system. So I ended up being responsible for marketing and public relations <laughs> because it was so closely tied to the development right. of program. I ended up being responsible for strategic planning because we needed a plan and I was screaming for one mm -hmm. uh, to support the fundraising activities that we needed to, to mount. And there was really no solid strategic plan for this new system. It was just created by the legislature and then we were thrown into it. Sure. And so I ended up getting strategic planning in my portfolio. Um, we were going through this massive change, you know, throwing employees together. They merged us with another system. It was, it was very traumatic for the employees. Uh, and so we were going through all this change. And so I ended up, because of my strategic planning role, having to learn how to manage all of these employees, 10,000 employees of the system, how to manage them through the changes that we were going to take them through to create this new system. So I ended up with a change in project management office and Went, went away and got certified in change management so I could lead that effort on behalf of the system. I got tagged in government relations because I was raising money for these new entities uh, and I needed state support to round out right. of the, course. the funding yeah. mechanism. And there was no one doing that. There was no one doing that. So I was sent to the legislature to do that. So I ended up creating a government relations division. Uh, and then I ended up, I opened up an office in Washington, DC. So it just, it just would. How many, so you started with one, but then how many people in the end were oh, in I this had, whole? I had 17 offices okay. across the, uh, 16 across the state and one central headquarters where I was located. I had 27 people in my shop uh, centrally. And then about 60 people across the state sure. spread out among all these, these different wow. institutions. Um, so you know, it, it, my career just kind of mushroomed. It sounds the, very organic, but you were bringing a strategic uh, lens to all of those activities, yeah, clearly. It, it, as those things unfolded, they became more uh, strategic and more um, aligned. We aligned everything together. And I, I had a very... Um, visionary president that I worked for. I was going to ask you about that because it sounds like they just let you do what you, he just what you did best. He gave me free reign okay. uh, because I was working in areas where he did not have expertise and that's the reason that the governor's office approached me originally was because I had the marketing background, sure. I had the fundraising background uh, and so they wanted me to be part of the executive team that was creating this new system and the president that they installed uh, recognized that he didn't have the skill sets that I did. So he just set me loose and supported me tremendously. 
Were you coming up with the goals too? Everything. So, it, yeah, which is great. I mean, it's completely autonomous. It sounds like you were running your own business. I was, yeah. It, I, I it felt very entrepreneurial because I was, sure. we were literally creating the system at the same time that we were running the system. You know, yeah. It was like yeah. we got thrown in to this creation of a new institution um, and we had to create it while we were running it. How was this for the students? I'm curious during this whole time. Um, they, were they more engaged than as students? Because a lot of things are happening now, bringing attention to the campus, which the, is good. The, the, the students um, were elated okay. uh, because now we had a lot of freedom as an in, those institutions had a lot more freedom because they were not tied to the main university campus anymore. They were each independently accredited as separate institutions under an umbrella system. So they could finally grow their own identity, provide unique services. And they did. Right. Um, We all, we did it all under uh, a common branded banner of of the system, but each institution and I built out a marketing and PR function at each college, a development function, government affairs state at my level because it was state and federal. Uh, and the, the college presidents worked with local politicians you know, in, in their region. But I was able to build out a team at each one of those college, uh, main college campuses. Uh, and then we, we created a very team oriented culture so uh, all of these people were on my team. Uh, so I had this huge team of people in each one of those disciplines, development, marketing, planning. All this, this lasted until when? When did you? I retired 40 years to the day on the same day that I started my career at Marshall. Yeah. 40 years later on that same day, I retired in 2016. You, you already, just the way you, you did this, uh, it sounds, I mean, not just masterful, but it also sounds like it was it was fun. I'm sure there was a lot of stress in there, but um, you know, I I look back on it and wonder how in the world I did that. Well, that's why I was asking where where Tim was in the middle of all that because you know, you obviously, know, you, you were the guy. I but did, we, you just when you're in the midst of it, you just are. You just do. You just do it. You know, and you just you know, I just kept bearing down and just pushing forward and just kept creating and creating and creating. Um, and then when I got toward the end, you know, I, 18 years in to that, mm-hmm. um, I had kind of coasted into status quo because everything was kind of a well-oiled machine 18 years later from that day that we started. And I just woke up one day and I was like, you know, I've done everything I can do for this system. Right. I'm done. And I literally just retired very quickly. I just said to the president, because he was getting ready to retire. And I was like, Mike, I'm not staying. When you go, I'm going. Right. And we did. We both left. But but when when, when, when was that? 2016. Part of the reason I'm asking that is because, and this is is a fascinating story on so many levels. Um, I have two questions here. One is about... uh, that transition, that um, the ability to uh, make sure that, that everything you had built with your team 
was maintained yeah. and then could grow afterwards. Right. That, that, that's been an issue for many people in our field where those who stay with something for a long time have trouble letting go. Right. Um, and then the other part is what it, what it must feel like now because you're looking there and I'm sure that they've had their share of challenges in the last mm. 16 plus months. Yeah. It, it, I mean, higher education has lost $183 billion yeah. during COVID. Right. So first of all, you know, talk about that, your ability to let go, because that's a good lesson for people. And then yeah. how it is it for a person who built that to watch what you built also yeah. go yeah. through this teeter, difficulty? Teeter a little bit. Um, I, had a, I had a very strong sense of not wanting to be that guy mm -hmm. that stays too long right. past their prime um, and, and then be remembered as the cranky old man, you know what I'm saying? I, I just was not going there. I, I had accomplished a lot. I was at the peak. Everything was at the peak of, of achievement. And I was like, this is the time to go because I'm, I'm not one. Once the new president process kicked in, I, you know, I was like, I'm not certain where this is going to go. And I'm going to leave on a high note and I'm going to leave on my terms. Uh, and be happy about my departure instead of leaving under other circumstances that might not sure. have been of my own choosing. So, uh, plus I wanted to do something different. Uh, you know, at that point I was just ready to do something different and um, and more kind of, you know, in a different vein. So, yeah, I just decided I was not going to be that guy, you know, that stuck around. Um, you know, the members of the president's cabinet were starting to retire around me, you know, and I was like, you know, this is not, this is not where I need to be anymore. Um, right. I've done what I can do. I've, I've done a lot and I'm happy with what I've achieved. It's time for me to go and I'll choose another path. And that's what I did. And a week after I retired, I started my firm, okay. um, <laughs> literally one week to the day I started, uh, the my consulting practice. And what kind of work are you doing? I, I, I don't really know the, the scope. Well, it it's morphed. Um, I, when I first began, it was really around uh, fundraising, advocacy, and public affairs, and planning. Um, what I've ended up doing, my very first contract was an executive search contract. And so, oh, but I can see that. I mean, you, you, you were the product of that in a way. Yeah. So I, I got into executive search. Right. I wasn't searching for that. It wasn't, I didn't define it. I didn't define it as part of my uh, company portfolio, mm -hmm. but I was referred to someone um, and it was a national fraternity based at Miami University. In yeah. And, um, and so I, and I had done massive number of searches. I was involved oh, sure. in it. With, with 16 collegiate institutions, we had 16 CEOs and I was involved in all of those search processes. Right. Um, plus so, all your staff. And plus all the other stuff. So it was not a difficult thing for me to, to know what to do. And so I did it. But did they come to you looking for another Tim Burcham? Uh, not really. You know, sometimes that happens and people get a sense not of the brand. Really. And then, okay, good. You know, um, they were looking for your knowledge about what would constitute successful yeah, leadership. And, and uh, God bless Lori Gustorf at AFP. She's the one that referred me hmm. uh, because of my 30 years of leadership at AFP. 
she knew I had transitioned into this consulting role um, and she had worked really closely with me all these years at AMP. So somebody called the international headquarters in DC looking for a search consultant and it was close. She knew that Lexington was close to Miami in Ohio, um, right outside of Cincinnati. So she referred him to me. And that's how I got that original contract. So I started doing executive search just because, well, why not? Well, what, why, why not? But, but that now you're doing... Uh, well, I still, I still do executive okay. search. I've uh, got two searches underway at the moment. But what I have done is I've taken all of that strategic planning background mm -hmm. and the development background and the change in project management background and melded it into a, uh, a methodology that only I use. Mm -hmm. um, planning, for instance, um, a lot of organizations have plans. They don't have outcomes. <laughs> they don't have specific outcomes right. that they can measure and track over time that are on a calendar, that have benchmarks, that have <laughs> risks and contingencies built in. Sure. You know, um, they don't know how to move an organization from where they are today to where they want to be, say, five years from now, because they get, cannot get the people in the organization to change what they're doing to take them down a new road. So overlaying change management into those planning processes and assessing what level of change it's going to require those employees, particularly to, to go through individually um, is a secret to my process that a lot of people don't factor in. Um, so I've, I've, I've built out a pretty strong strategic planning portfolio. And then I bring in behind that, you know, a comprehensive fundraising program, sure. uh, you know, how to develop a program from the ground up, which I've done multiple times. Um, it, but it's driven by that under underlying planning process, right. um, and it, it's worked out beautifully for me. Now you you mentioned AFP, yes, and it, uh, so talk about your involvement with AFP. Why, maybe most importantly, why AFP? Why that world is important to you? Well, um, when I first began. Um, the old NSFRE. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, was we were creating the, a chapter of NSFRE was being created in Lexington the very same year that I started fundraising um, at, at UK, and so I went to the very first meeting uh, of that chapter, and um, I, I knew it was a place where I could learn and get to know other fundraising professionals from the local community. And it turned out to be a fantastic network for me. Um, and so I just kept staying involved, you know, and became the chapter president at one point. Uh, and back then, way back, uh, every chapter president of a chapter was a member of the board. So I ended up going to the board meetings oh, yeah. of, of the old NSFRE. That was Pat, I guess, who was the president. The yeah, yeah. Pat, Pat Lewis. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I kind of got my taste of the the 
kind of the corporate AFP world of all these chapter leaders. Um, and then I got tagged to uh, chair a committee. The, the awards committee was my first assignment at that level. Um, and then I just maintained my involvement over time, um, became a uh, awards committee. Then I moved over to government relations because of my lobbying background, um, chaired the government relations committee. Then I, and then I formed the PAC, the political action committee, which was one of the most difficult things I've done in my career. Really? Why? Uh, because so much opposition to the concept of having a political action committee for AFP. What was the nature of that? Uh, a, a concern that it was um, inappropriate for a, a nonprofit like you know AFP representing nonprofit charitable organizations to be involved in politics, but it, it took me two and a half years to educate people on what a PAC is, what it does, okay. and how AFP would benefit from that. What were you drawing from your experience with the system? Yeah. To, okay. right. All of my years of working at, at the state and federal level in legislation and regulatory uh, stuff, you know, I knew uh, that AFP really needed that kind of an entity. Um, and it, it took me two and a half years to, to get it done. PACs but, still aren't popular today. I don't mean AFP's yeah. PAC, although I don't know how much support it has. I mean, I, it's I, got tremendous today. It's a tremendously well-supported entity of, of AFP. Um, but I went from there to chairing the external relations division mm -hmm. of AFP. Um, and then I was tagged to become secretary of the board. And then I was elected chair-elect sure. of AFP and served as the international chairman in 2007 and eight. Okay. Um, and then of course there's tenure after your chairmanship, you, you transition into different roles at AFP after you serve as chair. And then I was invited to join the AFP foundation. Uh, so I've been a part of that now for the past five years. And I chair the external major gifts committee of the AFP foundation. So 38, almost 40 years of involvement through all those various pieces and parts of AFP, and I'm still there. Yeah. I, and, and not going anywhere. <laughs> I was going to say, it, it, that takes a tremendous amount of, of, of time and commitment, yeah. and yeah. it's really important. I mean, all of us in the field, I know, appreciate that work. Even if we weren't aware of it, that yeah. you were doing it all, we really do appreciate it. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I imagine that there, just as with the... Uh, with the system that you that you've built from the ground up, that you see opportunities yeah. for for change. Oh yeah, and AFP and all the associations have gone through massive change. One of those elements, of course, is responding not just to what we've lived through together for the last year and a half, but also some of the change in dynamics of the economy as a whole. Mm -hmm. And they affected uh, membership and services for all the major associations. Right. So I know you're not going to give us uh, an inside view of what's, you know, what's the scuttlebutt inside AFP today, but I'm curious about your view about these entities and what they could look like if, if you and others, you know, reached out to us to help make them everything they could be. Yeah. Well, the main thing that I've been working on uh, on the foundation side is really to get AFP to focus its attention on 
replacing leadership in the sector. Okay. Uh, and preparing the next generation of, of leaders in the fundraising world because we're about to lose a significant number of our senior leaders just because of aging out. The, the baby yes. boomers are aging out. You can see that as we walk the halls even here. <laughs> but, but what do you imagine those leaders might look like? I mean, literally and figuratively. What much are, more diverse. Okay. Much more. You know, so the overlay of diversity, you know, equity, and inclusion, that overlay around uh, identifying rising leaders, uh, NAFP is now in the in the midst of creating a formal um, three-tiered leadership development program, um, and I'm charged as a, one of the committee chairs to find resources to support that. And it's really one of the first things that we've done that, in my estimation, uh, are, will be very attractive to external funding sources, mm. sources outside of AFP. Because if, if you think about losing leadership at, at nonprofit organizations, particularly in senior development roles in local communities across the country, uh, if we don't do something to help feed that pipeline and provide a pathway for those people to get into leadership positions, then communities all over the country are going to suffer for that. And, and the nonprofit right. world will suffer for it. Um, what does that suffering look like? Paint us a picture of the difference between making that change and not making it at the local. Well, not being able to find qualified professionals. Right. You know, if if so, no revenue for those local social right. service agencies, arts organizations, right. if, all these other things. Right. If, if, Community if, hospitals. I mean, it's it's hard enough now to find you know, qualified fundraising professionals. It's you know, it's a pretty difficult assignment. And in the search business, I can tell you for a fact, it's difficult to find people with really solid experience, you know, and, and credentials and background to step into really significant leadership roles uh, in nonprofit organizations. With the loss of the top tier kind of senior leaders moving out, aging out, Where's the pipeline behind them? Well, why, why, why are in, they there? Is it because we older folks have failed to bring them in? Is we it because have not really done a good job of succession planning? Okay, uh, of thinking long term down the road, and there have not been very clear pathways for fundraising staff to find their way into leadership roles. Right. So um, the the issue isn't just national; it's obviously very it's very, very local, local, organizational, very local, and. Um, we haven't fully, I don't believe, we have not fully maximized our chapter network around leadership development. Mm. And so this, this new leadership development program that's currently in development itself is really going to, to try to address that need across the country. Um, obviously using chapters as key partners in that whole paradigm and right. mix um, and, you know, finding external funding sources who will help us build that out and resource it and sustain it over time so that it can really address these, these pipeline issues. It's so interesting on that, on that. I know this is a very tactical kind of question, but you managed to find the resources in your work within the institutional environment and then within AFP. Yeah. To, uh, to fund those kinds of changes. But we know that in many organizations, even 
managing to make an argument for a new staff member, for mm -hmm. a little more resource for software, yeah. for screening. I mean, whatever the thing is that that's that's challenging. So mm -hmm. how much of this is getting people to rethink not just how they sell these things, but the, the importance of them, the commitment to them? I mean, well, it's bigger than AFP. Right. And, and I, you know, as we articulate what we're talking about here, this is really not even about AFP. We're simply a, an organization that is a natural conduit to solve this issue. Right. Uh, and we play a unique role from our perspective as you know, fundraising professionals to solve that role within the sector. Right. And so it really is a bigger issue than just an AFP program. And when you pivot your focus away from the organization and outward into the community, it changes the conversation completely. This is not about building AFP. This is about AFP helping communities through our network solve these issues. Do you think that itself has been a change oh, for a AFP huge, and the huge, other associations? It's a huge change. Okay. Um, because, you know, as a, as a membership organization, it's all about you know, serving the members, right. which we do and, and need to do. But as an association of professionals, when you turn the focus away from serving us to us serving the sector and the communities, it changes the conversation. Right. And that's the open door for conversation with funders. Because now they're not giving the money to AFP to help AFP. They're giving us the money to help the communities where we live and work across the nation. And based on what the communities identify as their own exactly. needs and interests. Right. Right. But a, a leadership development framework that we're putting into place that can be applied in every location sure. based on what the circumstances are there. It's a very different kind of paradigm. And... It's one that I'm really super excited about. Right. Which is why you keep doing it. Obviously. Which is why I'm still around. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny. It, it seems like in both of these big stories that you've been sharing, uh, it, it was preparing an organization to be on its own. It's like giving birth to the baby. Right. Um, yeah. That 18-year window before retirement, you right. know, for example, is yeah. that there you go. Okay, so time to go yeah. away, off to college. And it must be feeling the same way with AFP, although I know you have still lots to do. But you've done a ton. Yeah. What is left undone? I don't mean specifically just within the business, but what's what's on your agenda? I mean, what what would you what do you, what are you looking forward to doing in the next decade or so? You know, it's it's at this stage in my career, it is really about um, paying it forward, mm -hmm. paying it forward, um, and and really transitioning this to the next generation that's coming up. You know, and and doing what I can to help them. You know, it, you know, if there's anything that I can do from my experience uh, and the path that I took that can help someone who's kind of on a similar path or is trying to get to a certain point in their career, to me, that's that's where I should be spending time. You know, um, and I and I do a lot of that. You know, work work with younger fundraising professionals who are really grappling with career and career choices and you know, which path they're going to go and what kind of work they're going to really want to do. 
Uh, so I see that as kind of the, the final part of my legacy is, is, is helping that generation come, come up behind us. Because, again, we're all leaving. <laughs> Those of us in these senior roles are leaving. And I want to make sure that there's a pipeline behind us that can take our places and just keep everything moving on upward. And if we don't spend time thinking about that and addressing it, we'll look back and there won't be anybody there. Right. Well, I hope it doesn't mean you're going to lure everybody out of a musical theater program (laughs) into fundraising, because I think we need the stages, too. (laughs) So there's no audition for you for, I don't know, Man of La Mancha or something in the future? Those those days are gone. (laughs) Well, that's a little disappointing, but I'm glad to hear that you're going to still (laughs) bring all this energy and insight for a long time to come for our world. And I really appreciate your taking some time to share some of this. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions. 